1: That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No process by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. website for details.
2: Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. Welcome to the audience in Middle Georgia. Officially today, WMAC and Macon comes online with the Eric Erickson show. If you'd like to call and be a part of the program, you are permitted. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. This hour brought to you by First Liberty of Georgia. If you're a small business, medium-sized business, you want to grow and become a big business, go to firstlibertyga.com. Great people, great company. They can help you grow, get you access to capital without all the bank bureaucracy. Good friends of the show. Help support the show. Go to firstlibertyga.com. For more Uh, I was going to start with the Comey interview, but before I get to the Comey interview, you need to know uh, James Cook was arrested in Athens. Those of you who are Georgia fans will need to know this at least. Those of you who are Georgia Tech fans, you can laugh as I relay the news. Georgia football player James Cook was arrested on a pair of misdemeanor charges Saturday morning. He's a sophomore running back from Miami. He was pulled over by athens Clark County Police, charged with driving with an open container of alcohol and an invalid driver's license. He was released by 2.57 a.m. on a $2,000 bond. There's no word yet on whether or not it'll affect his eligibility for the bowl game. Uh, Kirby Smart is aware of the incident. We can move on from there, but there's your headline to get you worrying about the bowl games. How about that? Now... Let's get into the issue. We'll get to impeachment. Yes, uh, uh, James Van, what's his name, Drew, or Jeff. Jeff Van Drew is fleeing the Democratic Party. Who knew when you went into the weekend thinking the Democrats had just voted on impeachment of the president of the United States that they would wind up the week with a smaller majority in the house of representatives. Uh, One democratic member of the house is bolting the democratic party. Now here's the richness of this. Just, just let me put it in perspective and we'll come back to it later. Just, just savor it for a moment. Jeff Van Drew went into a democratic primary in 2018 and Democratic progressive activists poured money into that primary to beat him. He's a congressman in New Jersey. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee poured millions of dollars into the race to save Jeff Andrew, to save him from AOC and her minion. Pouring money in to beat him, then she was even a congressional candidate, but she was already rallying progressives against moderate Democrats, and they were pouring money into this race to beat him. And the Nancy Pelosi's D Triple C poured money in to save Jeff Andrew, and how's he paying him back? He's becoming a Republican this week in protest of impeachment. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. We, we, we'll we'll get back to this. We we will, but I I gotta I gotta. Spend a little bit of time on uh, the, the the IG report uh, because James Comey was on made the TV rounds this weekend. It didn't go very well, in large part over the Christopher Steele dossier. Oh, and before I forget, thank you, Alan Sanders, for filling in for me on Friday. Uh, We're at that time of year where we've got school recitals and uh, Christmas concerts, and I thought I could pre-record the first half of the show, make it sound like I was live, and then sneak into the studio on Friday and and do the rest of the show live. And and logistically, it became impossible, uh, and Alan was able to jump in at the last minute and, and save me from the wrath of my child for... Uh, being able to actually go to his Christmas concert. So thank you, Alan. Now, before we set the stage on Comey, let me review for you what the media said about the Christopher Steele dossier. You will recall Christopher Steele was the British intelligence agent hired by the Democrats to do a summation of all the dirt on Donald Trump to inquire into foreign intelligence services about Donald Trump, turns out that Christopher Steele was paid in part by a Russian oligarch. That's right. Christopher Steele was taking money from a Russian oligarch while all of this was happening. The Democrats were paying him and the media wanted us to know it was all true.
3: Parts of the now infamous dossier on Trump have proven to be true. I know the Campaign history dollars. of the dossier,
1: but it hasn't been discredited. In fact, it's been the opposite. It's been corroborated. Much of the dossier has been corroborated. This discredited
0: dossier, it which hasn't was been paid, discredited.
1: For, paid for, paid Your intel community has corroborated all of the details in there, the all. meeting. Some
0: of the substance con- content of the dossier, we were able to corroborate in our intelligence community assessment, which hmm. from other sources, in which we had very high confidence level. We
1: know that with the FISA application, the relevant parts of Christopher
3: Steele's dossier were corroborated. That if the application included information from the dossier, it would only be after the FBI had, in fact, corroborated information through its own investigation.
1: We also know that as time goes on, more and more parts of the Steele
0: dossier get corroborated. Well. So when the president just refers to his fake dossier, that is false? Uh, I- I don't think that's that, that is the accurate characterization for the entirety of the dossier. Clear. Investigators have corroborated part of the uh, dossier.
1: The dossier has been corroborated by the intelligence community. U.S. investigators have corroborated some of the allegations in that dossier. Yes. Although- we do know that parts of it have been corroborated.
0: It's not been corroborated, but it hasn't been disproven either. Is
1: there anything in the dossier that has been disproven? No. But not one thing has been disproven. No major thing from the
0: dossier has been
1: conclusively disproven.
0: To date, none of it has been disproven. And whole big parts of it are holding up.
1: The As
4: dossier um, holds up well.
0: None of it has been disproven. All of the allegations in it, I don't know that anything has been disproven. It's a fact that none of it, not one word, has been disproven. In fact, a lot of it turned out to be right on the
1: money. Former high-ranking intelligence officials have told us on the record that there is nothing in the Steele dossier that they know to have been disproved. Much of the dossier has been corroborated. Do you not accept that? I the, don't
4: agree with that, Alice. This is
1: our reporting, and this is what um, this is what crime. Fighting agencies have said that the FBI would not have just taken a dossier to the FISA court and used that as their predicate for the surveillance. They had to corroborate it themselves. That's how they operate.
2: Uh, (laughs) Well, it turns out that there was some uh, serious, well, there should be some crow eating. There should be, uh, but there's not going to be any crow being eaten by the media. The media is not going to come out. And apologize. Uh, You know, interestingly enough, though, uh, Dick Durbin of Illinois came out and said the FBI owes Carter Page an apology. Page, you will recall, uh, was surveyed by the FBI and turns out in part it was based on the Christopher Steele dossier that calls the surveillance of Carter Page. Well, here's Dick Durbin on CBS over the weekend
1: by the fbi Uh, and specifically i want to ask you about what an fbi lawyer did when he retroactively changed an email that was presented as part of evidence regarding a trump campaign associate carter page uh jim comey's on fox this morning and he said carter was treated unfairly does the u.s government owe carter page an apology
3: well i can certainly tell you based on what we saw they do uh, and here's the bottom line many of us uh, have been looking at this fisa the secret fisa court for years saying
2: this isn't the first and won't be the last time that the fbi re- misrepresents evidence before this court and proceeds Uh, We have tried to reform the proceedings. Senator Lee, Republican, Senator Leahy, Democrat, myself, and others have been pushing for FISA reform. We couldn't get the Republicans to join us in that effort. Maybe now they will. This should be a bipartisan effort to clean up the FISA court. What happened in this situation was inexcusable. But remember what the Inspector General said as the bottom line opening this investigation was warranted
4: and not political.
1: But he also said there were 17 significant errors that he uncovered alone.
2: Yeah, and well, about the Carter Page dossier, you've heard the media saying everything about the Steele dossier. What was not disproven. Not that it was proven, but it wasn't disproven. Just to remind you from last week in the uh, Senate hearing of the Judiciary Committee, here's Michael Horowitz, uh, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, appointed by Barack Obama, talking about the FISA application. For example. If I could click the right button here. Uh, it's morning. My coffee's kicking in. Here we go.
1: For example. The Crossfire Hurricane team obtained information from Steele's primary subsource in January 2017 that raised significant questions about the reliability of the Steele reporting. This was particularly noteworthy because the FISA applications relied entirely on information from the from the Steele from the primary subsource's reporting to support the allegation that Page was coordinating with the Russian government on 2016 U.S presidential election activities however the fbi did not share this information with department lawyers and it was therefore omitted from the last two
2: renewal applications oh, uh yeah well so a, a chris wallace interviewed james comey Could, first of all you do have to give james comey credit for going on with chris wallace who has the reputation of a tenacious question asker uh is that even a word and And uh, that Comey went on Fox News. He went on Fox. Uh, He he could have gone someplace safe. He could have gone to MSNBC. But he went on with Chris Wallace, and, well, it didn't go well for James Comey.
0: Director Comey, not only do you fail to go back to the president-elect or president after January 20th and tell him, oh, you know that report I briefed you on? Turns out it's bunk. But... The FBI can, goes back and renews its FISA application three more times. And by this point, the FBI knows that the this, this steel reporting is not credible.
3: Yeah, I think you're mischaracterizing both what the FBI knew and what Mr. Horowitz says in his report. They didn't conclude the reporting from Steele was bunk. They concluded there were significant questions about the reliability of some of the subsource reporting. That should have been included in the renewals, but when I briefed the president, I briefed him on a small part of it that I told him I didn't know whether it was true or not. I didn't care. I just needed him to know about it.
0: I think you're mischaracterizing Steele isn't, or rather uh, Horowitz isn't saying that the that the uh, subsource, the Russian contact, was unreliable or was inaccurate, the Russian contact said to the FBI, Steele is unreliable because he misrepresented. Steele misstated or exaggerated the source's statements in multiple sections of the report. He's saying, I told him one thing and he wrote something else. The FBI knew that.
3: Yeah, but that doesn't drive a conclusion that Steele's reporting is bunk. I mean, you know, there are tricky things to that. First, you're interviewing the subsource after all the reporting has become public. And so as a counterintelligence investigator, you have to think, is he walking away from it because it's now public? Well, but, and that has to go into your assessment but, but of Mr. Steele. It
0: hadn't, I mean, if it become public it, just barely, this is in January of 2017. This isn't two years later.
2: <laughs> so the subsource says the Steele. He, he told Steele X and Steele reported Y. And Kobe says, well, it doesn't mean Steele was wrong. Oh, it went downhill from there. Did you
0: know all of this? All of what? Everything that we're talking about here. Did you know that, in fact, the Steele report was the key for probable cause? Did you know that the FBI had talked to the Russian contact and he said what Steele said he had he had uh, told him was not true? Did you know this? You're the FBI director.
3: First, again, the report will speak for itself. I don't believe the FBI concluded that Steele's reporting was bunk after talking to a subsource. But no, I didn't. As the director, you're not kept informed on the details of an investigation? So no, in general, I didn't know what they'd learned from the subsource. I didn't know the particulars of the investigation. But this isn't some investigation,
0: sir. This is an investigation of the campaign of the man who is the President of the United States. You've just been through a firestorm investigating Hillary Clinton. I would think if I were in your position, I would have been on that you know, like a like a junkyard dog. I would have wanted to know everything they were doing in investigating the Trump campaign.
3: Yeah, That's not the way it works, though. As, as a director sitting on top of an organization of 38,000 people, you can't run an investigation that's seven layers below you. You have to leave it to the career professionals to do, to the special agents who do this for their lives. And if a director tries to run an investigation, it, it'll get mucked up in all different kinds of ways, given his or her responsibilities and the impossibility of reaching the work that's being done at the Lower level.
2: Uh, so instead, it just got screwed over the lower level. Now, now, hang on a second, hang on, because I, I I think there there's a relevant point here. First of all, notice how the media is not seizing on this when a deputy junior assistant undersecretary for bottle collection at the Department of Health and Human Services makes a mistake it becomes a national scandal when the media finds out about it and they throw it in the lap of the president of the United States. And it doesn't matter which administration it is. It doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, although more so with Republicans, it is always the problem with the president of the United States. Here is the FBI director acknowledging that his junior underling seven layers down screwed up an investigation. It is not disputed that the inspector general, I mean, you got Dick Durbin, for Pete's sake, on national television saying Carter Page is owed a, an, an apology. You have the inspector general saying that, these, uh, that Christopher Steele screwed up the report and misrepresented people in his report. You've got Christopher, you've got the, the Horowitz uh, saying that the FBI relied on Steele's dossier. And what is James Comey's response? Oh, well, the buck doesn't stop with me. It's, it stops with someone seven layers beneath me. Can you just just ask yourself this? I I don't care what your partisan persuasion is. Just ask yourself. If President Trump were to do this and say, I I knew nothing of it. It happened seven layers down from me. What would the media response be? Well, you, you don't have to go too far. Because it was the Obama administration that decided to start putting children in cages along the Rio Grande and the media said nothing about it until Donald Trump became president. And now suddenly it's his problem when it was an Obama-era decision. I mean, we, we can see the bias in this. And the fact they're giving Comey a pass on this is absurd. But he said more. We've got more audio to play when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. If you'd like to be a part of the program, 877 97 Eric, E R I C K, 877 973 7425.
1: Want to be on the show? Call Eric now at 877 97 Eric. That's 877 973 7425.
2: You can text the word show to 33777. And yep, that's it. Text the word SHOW to 33777. You'll get the podcast. You'll get the show notes. You'll get a link over to TheResurgent.com where you can read me every day. Uh, fair disclosure, full warning. Uh, this is the Christmas season, and I spend more time writing about faith and culture than I do politics. Uh, although I do have some stuff on impeachment over there at The Resurgent today, and we'll get to that impeachment stuff. But uh, we, we still got Comey and uh, the his, well... His statements to Chris Wallace didn't go so well for him. Um, And we got to get there. But before I do, I I just can I comment as an aside? I made the mistake while we were in commercial to check out the weather. And can winter make up its mind? So it's 54 here in Macon right now. Uh, In Athens, it's 54. In Blue Ridge, 57. Clarksville, it's 52. 57 in Dalton. Basically, 54 Jasper, 59 Rome. It's in the 60s. Uh, all over South Georgia, uh, Valdos Vide is 55, but South Georgia, it's it's in the 60s right now. And I'm looking at this and it says that the high today here in Macon, where I am is seventy three degrees uh, this afternoon. And then tomorrow, ninety percent chance of storms, sixty eight for high, thirty four for a low. and by Wednesday, it's going to be in the 20s again. We're all going to die of pneumonia. I mean, my, we, we in my house, everybody in my house has had the, the uh, sinus congestion and cold. It's been miserable. The weather cannot make up its mind. Can we get it some Thorazine or something to like calm the effects of the weather schizophrenia? Or something? I just weather in the south next week, summer. And then on Christmas Day, it'll be cold. Maybe we'll see. OK, back to James Comey and Chris Wallace. Did you know all of this?
0: All of what? Everything that we're talking about here, did you know that, in fact, the Steele report was the key for probable cause? Did you know that the FBI had talked to the Russian contact and he said what Steele said he had he had uh, told him was not true? Did you know this? You're the FBI director. Yes,
2: you heard that clip, but it's important to hear Chris Wallace's tone of voice in this. Chris Wallace clearly is surprised by James Comey defending himself. He's clearly surprised by Comey's attitude in all of this. And Comey, of course, is just like, oh, no, it was seven le- levels down. I didn't want to be held accountable. So then Chris Wallace decides to go for it. Comey pinned an op-ed and said he felt vindicated by the Horowitz report. Horowitz asked about it, says no one should feel vindicated by it. So Chris Wallace asks the question. think this is vindication
3: it is i mean the fbi's had to wait two years while the president and his followers lied about the institution finally the truth gets told
0: does your report vindicate mr comey
3: it doesn't vindicate anyone at the fbi who touched this including the leadership
0: the ig says you should feel no vindication
3: well maybe it turns upon how we understand the word what i mean is that the fbi was accused of treason of illegal spying, of tapping Mr. Trump's wires illegally, of opening an investigation without justification, of being a criminal conspiracy to unseat defeat and then unseat a president. All of that was nonsense. I think it's really important that the inspector general looked at that and that the American people, your viewers and all viewers, understand that's true. But. He also found things that we were never accused of, which is real sloppiness. And that's concerning, as I've said all along, has to be focused on. If I were a director, I'd be very concerned about it and diving into it. Y'all, I'm sorry.
2: But James Comey has shown himself to be a man out of his moment. A man too small for history. He was a bureaucrat who ran a department of law enforcement bureaucratically. And to quote Jeremiah Wright, his chickens have come home to roost and he can feel vindicated all he wants, but it was a damning indictment of him and his tenure as FBI director. Just as we come back from break, I get a a notification on my iPhone. My fitness pal thinks I need to step on a scale and update my weight. I feel personally trolled by my iPhone right now. I will have you people know I went to CrossFit at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning. I have no idea why. And then I went home and slept. And then I made sugar cookies. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, it's Eric Erickson here. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. And we need to move on from the IG for a little bit. Actually, no, I got to play one more clip from Chris Wallace, because Wallace was really good in this interview. I appreciate Chris Wallace being willing to ask tough questions. You know, the president doesn't like Chris Wallace. He he thinks Wallace is is out to get him, uh, but Wallace is just out to get everyone. This is the thing that that the president doesn't understand. It's like, you know, I I told the president, uh, he, he called me a while back, and I told him, you know, I'm in an interesting position. I just hate everybody in politics these days. I mean, he, he's a nice guy. Personally, the president and I disagree on some things, but it's just it's nice to just look at politics today and just be um, revolted by all of it. Well, so is Chris Wallace.
0: Oh, I, I understand. There are two parts to this report. The, uh, Horowitz says there was no political bias in opening the investigation. He talks about problems with the five big problems with the FISA process. But isn't it harder to argue that there was no political bias overall when you see 17 mistakes made by three teams on four separate FISA applications?
2: You know, this is one of the things about this. You've got four teams, three or four teams. You've got 17 errors that are based on political bias, you've got... uh, For those of you who, who don't understand what happened here, I mean, we really need to put this in perspective that the FISA application, the lawyer at the FBI, the lawyer in charge of the FISA application reached out to the CIA to ask the CIA if Carter Page was a source for the FBI... The CIA responded, yes, in fact, Carter Page is a source for the FBI, or for the CIA, rather. And then the FBI agent says to the FISA court, the CIA says he is not. I mean, just put this in perspective. This is Ted Cruz engaged with michael horowitz the inspector general who was appointed by barack obama
0: so the men and women at home need to know what's happening a lawyer at the fbi creates fraudulent evidence alters an email that is in turn used as the basis for a sworn statement to the court that the court relies on am i stating that accurately
2: Uh, that's correct that is what occurred that's what occurred that's extraordinary That is extraordinary. And to say, oh, well, no, 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 no political bias there. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there was some, there were all sorts of problems. There were. Now, I need to circle back with you. As I mentioned, I was supposed to be here on Friday. Thank you again, Alan Sanders, for, for filling in a spur of the, I mean, really spur of the moment too, when I realized there was no way I could make everything work. Uh, Friday to, to get back in time from my son's Christmas program. Uh, he, the British election happened on Thursday and it was a blowout by the conservatives. And, and we're still having conversations in this country about whether or not it's relevant in this country. One of the things that, that I think is very notable is that the the media is taking a position that, well, you know, our American left is not as left as the British left we don't have the anti-Semitism that the British left has. Uh, this comes on the heels of a of a mass shooting in New Jersey by a bunch of anti-Semites where the left rushed out and said, oh, white supremacy, white supremacy, it's all Trump's fault. And then it turned out the shooters were black uh, and, and hated Jews. And now you've got Bernie Sanders endorsing Sink Younger, who is running for Congress in California. And video has come out of Sink of interviewing David Duke uh, positively, about the the um, the the nefarious influence of Jews in America, but the media says that the American left isn't as far left as as the British left. I I, I do have to say uh, there's a video out this morning, and I can't play it for you. I cannot play the video of the remember the the um, remember the woman on election day she was wearing, I think it was the orange raincoat, as the president has sworn in, and she's on the ground, and, and her ears are covered. No! No! <laughs> It's one of the funniest clips ever of this impeachment or this La Résistance movement uh, woman who's just – I wish they would go back and find this woman, go into the middle institutions of America and find this woman who's, no, when the the president was, was sworn into office. The British are reacting this way. The British progressives are reacting this way to Boris Johnson. And they've taken to the streets, marching, saying, he's not my prime minister. And you, just like in this country, they marched on election day, say, or on, on inauguration day, saying, he's not my president. Uh, he's, he's not my prime minister, they're saying. And Boris Johnson has come out and said, it's true. He's not their prime minister. He's actually uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's prime minister. He's not their prime minister. He, he's not. He, he doesn't even represent these people in, in Parliament. He represents a smaller constituency in Parliament. He's actually just the Queen's first minister. He has nothing to do with these people. But they're marching to the streets. That they're calling him all sorts of, of things. I can't run on radio. It would be bad form of me to play. There might be children listening. Can't play him on radio. But they're in total meltdown over there. But he's not their prime minister. They're totally correct. And Even Boris Johnson has come out and said basically fact check true i'm not your prime minister i'm the queen's prime minister <laughs> the, this le- the meltdown though he, there are some parallels but you, you've also you got to understand uh, that with the british election and our election system here Things are somewhat different, uh, like last week. Uh, so, so Charlie, my producer, texted me and said, "How can they? How, how? Why are the exit polls so much quicker and more accurate there than they are here?" Actually, the exit polls here are are really accurate. Uh, exit polling in the United States—you got to remember though—the difference is that exit polling in this country comes in waves. There's a a morning, a midday, and an evening exit polling in this country. The morning and the midday are never accurate. You have to wait until the evening uh, exit surveys are compiled. Exit polls are compiled with the morning in the afternoon the reason you have to wait for the evening is because there's a larger pool of voters who vote in the evening in this country than there are in the mornings in the afternoon the mornings in the afternoon skew very heavily to the democrats republicans show up after work not before work so you've got all the these situations involved here uh but you also have 45 million voters in the uk and 245 million voters in the united states have a massive more pool of voters plus in the uk all they're voting for is parliament so you go in and, and you vote you vote for your party are you or voting for labor conservative liberal democrat green uh scottish national Sinn fein uh democratic union whatever and then you leave and, and the, the pollsters get asked did you vote conservative did you vote labor did you vote Sinn fein who'd you vote for they're not allowed to ask that question in this country the reason they're not allowed to ask this question and that question in this country is the same reason you are not allowed to take a picture in this country of your polling location. I did this before, you know, uh, so I, I vote off off Bass Road here in Macon uh, at, at Mabel White Baptist Church and uh, go in a couple of years ago and I took a picture and tweeted out I voted and I, I showed uh, that, that I voted for Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams. And a friend of mine who works for the Secretary of State's office called me, I mean, before I got to my car, called me and said, you got to delete the picture. It's illegal. Huh? It's my vote. Freedom of speech. Nope. It's it's illegal. It's illegal. Uh, you cannot take a picture of your ballot in, in the United States. It is illegal. And the Supreme Court has actually upheld it. And the reason the Supreme Court upheld it is, is for the same historic understanding of why pollsters cannot stand out polling locations at exit polls and ask who you voted for in this country. They can in Great Britain, and that's why the the exit polling is so accurate and goes so fast. But in this country, we have a history of uh, white people in the South in the 50s and 60s, actually even before the 50s, uh, forcing black people to go in and vote for particular candidates. That happened in parts of the South. It also happened in parts of the North, if we're honest about it, uh, but particularly pervasive in the Jim Crow South, where if a black voter wanted access to the polls, they had to promise to go in and vote for someone. And so oftentimes, someone would go in with them to oversee. And in the rise of cell phones, it works the same way. You can't take a picture of your ballot because of voter intimidation laws. In the same way, there are mask laws in the South that have been upheld by the... the um, by the supreme court that except on halloween and whatnot you can't wear masks in public Uh, because uh, anti-Klan laws. Uh, We have unique quirks due to uh, discrimination in the South after the Civil War that mean that exit pollsters in this country have a harder time than in other countries. In Canada and Great Britain and France and Germany, Australia, New Zealand, anywhere you can have an exit pollster stand outside and ask which party someone voted for or in some cases which candidate they voted for. And it allows the pollsters to accurately tabulate quickly who people around the country voted for, and it allows them to get a very accurate snapshot. In this country, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, It is against the law, and the Supreme Court has upheld it. In this country, when a pollster stands outside a polling location, have you you ever taken an exit poll? Um, You don't have to. And the way exit polling works is actually very fascinating. When I was at CNN, I had to study this uh, for the exit polling. And and this is one reason why exit polling tends to actually be very good in this country because they've had to work very long and very hard over the last hundred years with the Associated Press and others to get a detailed snapshot of how the electorate works in this country. First of all, what they do is, is they find swing precincts. They know that in some areas like uh, in, in my my voting precinct is very much a Republican precinct. Uh, when I go in and vote, it is like uh, the Republican Party has a, has a dinner on the grounds meeting. You expect casseroles with, with uh, dry macaroni and cheese and fried chicken at the polling location. And it's going to be the, the whole Republican Party is going to be there uh, from North Macon. Uh, you either go over to Idle Hour, the country club, or, or, you, or you head to the polling location. And everybody sees each other every two years. And all the Republicans know, oh, haven't seen him today. Better give him a call and make sure he shows up. But you, you go downtown in Macon. And it's exactly the opposite. It's a Democratic precinct, and it is overwhelmingly a Democratic precinct, and everybody knows it's a Democratic precinct. In fact, I've got a, a buddy of mine who is a Republican who in, in downtown Macon showed up to vote and for in a primary, and they automatically handed him uh, the Democratic ballot. And he's like, ah, oh, no, I, I want the Republican and i like, oops, my bad. But they just know everybody who shows up is going to be a Democrat. Now, as a corollary, I got a friend of mine who showed up at a, at a um, voting precinct in, in uh, North Bibb County that's very Republican, and they handed him the Republican ballot. He's like, oops, nope, I want the Democratic ballot. He's a professor um, in any event. So yeah, there's no reason to go do an exit poll in, a, in an overwhelmingly Republican or an overwhelmingly Democratic precinct. So you go to a swing district or a swing precinct. And in the swing precincts, you, you map them out, uh, where are the swing precincts in a state, the Associated Press and local reporting agencies assign someone to be there. And they have to stay back so many feet from the polls, but they can come up to you afterwards, and usually the, the local boards of elections give them a little attitude, and they say, hey, I'm an exit pollster for national media organizations, could I ask you about the election? And they say yes. And... The questions that they ask are not the questions that they would ask you in another country. They're not going to ask you, for example, if they they were to do this in your polling precinct in 2020, they would not say, did you vote for Donald Trump or the other guy, whoever that person is on the Democratic side. They're not allowed to ask that question. They can't even ask, did you vote Republican or did you vote Democrat? They're not allowed to ask that question. What they can ask you is, uh, what's your race, black, white, Hispanic, uh, ethnicity, Do you think the economy is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? I think it's headed in the right direction. Do you tend to support the president's policies or not? I I tend to support the president's policies. Do you believe uh, that uh, the country is uh, better served by maintaining the status quo or changing it? I think we need to maintain the status quo. Do you believe that the Democrats went too far to the left this year with their nominee? I think they did go too far left. Um, Are you a member of a major political party? I am. Do you mind saying which one you are? I'm a Republican. Okay. You can ask that. You can get to that question. Um, So here we have a voter who says the economy is headed in the right direction. It would be better if we maintained the status quo. Uh, the Democrats have moved too far to the left, and this person is a Republican or independent or whatever. Hey, I bet that person voted for Donald Trump. You, you, see, you see what I'm getting at here? Is you can ask who the person voted for, but you can't ask who the person voted for. you got to ask a series of questions designed to be able to show. But now, here's the genius of it. In Britain, with the exit polling, you can ask, uh, did you vote labor, conservative, what have you? Uh, and then you can ask questions. Do you think one inside is too far right? What do you think about anti-Semitism? All these questions that the exit pollsters asked. Uh, in this country, though, you have to ask more questions. It takes longer to get through an exit poll in this country. Uh, there are many more people who do the exit polls in this country, spread out. There were 30,000 people who did exit polling in the U.K. There will be about 50 to 60,000 in the United States. It will be spread out in key pre- swing precincts around the country. But they will have a copious amount of knowledge about where the election went because they can't short circuit it by saying which party did you vote for. They have to ask questions to give a strong sense of where people think the direction of the country is going. So then you get to 2020 in this country and what will be remarkable is we will have a highly accurate data set of a massive amount of voters who are statistically sampled in a reliable way who can tell us. Do black voters think the country's headed in the right direction? Do Hispanic voters think they're succeeding in the economy? Are white voters really concerned about health care compared to black and Hispanic voters? We'll have all of that data, and it provides a good snapshot of where the country is. Uh, way better than your random opinion polling. Exit polling is highly reliable when it's properly adjusted, and you do have to properly adjust it. Uh, But it'll be a very interesting snapshot headed into 2020 when we see the exit polling. We do have some polling out today you need to know about from CBS News, and it's not actually good news for the Democrats pursuing impeachment. I really do like his opinion on things. Eric Erickson, the information you need and the truth you demand. He
5: tells it like it is.
1: Live every weekday.
2: CBS News is reporting Barack Obama says women are pretty indisputably better than men. Why did he fight so hard to keep a woman out of the White House in 2008 then? hmm? Makes you wonder. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Ocean, and on Facebook Live and the series of tubes known as the Internet. If you would like to be a part of the program, you can call 877 97 Eric. 877-973-7425. Also, I sent out the sugar cookie recipe the other day. For those of you new to the program, yes, every week I send out a recipe or two. You can get on the recipe list. It's non-political. Why? Because I believe that whether or not you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, progressive, conservative, socialist, communist, whatever, you should at least be able to break bread together and find something you have in common. Uh, And so I'm making it easy by giving you easy recipes. And I sent out a sugar cookie recipe. And I got lectured by some lady on Instagram. I don't think she listens to the show. So I'm just going to tell you. An an older lady who informs me she's been making sugar cookies for 50 years. And in 50 years, she's never seen a sugar cookie recipe with self-rising flour. It's always all-purpose flour, baking soda, salt, eggs, uh, oftentimes butter. Mine had oil in it. And I replied back, you do realize that self-rising flour is all-purpose flour with baking powder and salt already added. Nope. Nope. It didn't take that well. Nonetheless, uh, the sugar cookie recipe was a hit with a lot of people, and I'm telling you, I discovered on my front porch last night, goes good with bourbon too, the sugar cookies. If you want that recipe or more, if you text the word recipe to 33777, I will send you back a text message asking for your email address. When you send me your email address, I send you a link to all the recipes, including the sugar cookie recipe. There will be more recipes out this week. Text recipe to 33777. Do you know what Hillary Clinton's margin of victory was in 2016 in the popular vote? Anybody? 48.2% of the American public supported Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump got about 46% of the vote. Now, he won because of the Electoral College, but Hillary Clinton arguably won the popular vote in this country. She got more votes than he did. But that's not the way we elect presidents in this country. You have to get a a consensus of states in this country, not a consensus of people. Why? Because people are stupid and the founders knew it, so they rely on on the electoral college. Come on, we're all sinners. We know it. Well, Hillary Clinton got 48.2% of the popular vote in this country. If you take the polling averages— Take the, the poll average, take all the polls on impeachment and average them together to get a pretty accurate snapshot of where the public is based on various polling models. Impeachment polling, according to the Real Clear Politics impeachment polling average, polls at 47.2% of the vote in support of removing the president of the United States. In other words, impeachment polls worse than Hillary Clinton polled in 2016. Impeachment gets fewer support for supporters than Hillary Clinton got in 2016, which might suggest that maybe we should allow the public to settle this instead of Congress settling it. And now comes a rumor in Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill, I guess I should say. Now comes a rumor on Capitol Hill that Nancy Pelosi may not actually submit articles of impeachment to the floor of the House. What's that you say? Well, There are some people who want her to advocate a position that since the deck is already stacked against impeachment in the Senate and those icky, awful, mean Republicans aren't going to give it a fair hearing, there's no sense wasting anyone's time, which really, this is a total cop out to protect the Democrats because moderate Democrats really don't want it to happen. Oh, I got a lot of news to discuss with you on impeachment right here on the Eric Erickson show. When we come back across the state of Georgia, we're going to have some fun.
0: Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the
2: state of Georgia, around the nation and on the internet, Uh, the Eric Erickson show, the phone number, if you would like to be a part, hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia and around the nation, the phone number 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, y'all, uh, did you leave the week? Leave the end of last week thinking, "Hmm, I think the Democrats are going to see a decrease in their majority in the House because of impeachment." Uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't actually see that coming. And, and at the end of the week, uh, word broke that Jeff Van Drew. A Democrat from New Jersey is switching to the Republican side. The president has been pestering him. Van Drew is one of a handful of Democrats who are opposed to impeachment, more and more vocally so. His district leans Republican. Let's just be clear here. Van Drew does not oppose impeachment on principle. Jeff Van Drew opposes impeachment as a matter of self-preservation. Van Drew is a moderate Democrat who lives in a district that is increasingly Republican. He is worried about being redistricted out next year. Uh, progressives have been rallying against him in uh, his district. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others have been raising a ton of money to beat him in a Democratic primary. So he has switched to the Republican Party over impeachment. I got to tell you, things are not going well for the Democrats. A focus group, Axios, uh, the website, news website, has conducted a focus group on Obama voters who voted for Trump in 2016. And they conducted the focus group in Saginaw County. That's in Michigan. This is relevant because Saginaw County is one of those areas Hillary Clinton completely ignored in 2016. It is an area that went for Barack Obama twice and Barack Obama won it uh, by nearly 12 percentage points in 2012 and then Trump won Saginaw County by one and a quarter percentage points in 2016. Focus groups are not polls and you do need to understand that. Polling, hey, listen, I, I am in the just, if you're new to this program, I there are some really terrible pollsters out there but there are some really good pollsters out there. Pollsters do not always get it right. But as a snapshot in time, polling actually, depending on what the poll does, is a pretty good idea. Polling cannot tell you uh, public policy questions. Polling is terrible for shaping, uh, for, for the public shaping public opinion. Polling can tell you who's ahead, who's behind, stuff like that. Uh, polling can tell you impeach or don't impeach. Polls that are are simple can tell you information. Polling, though, and focus groups are different things. Uh, Focus grouping is a handful of people in a room. This is 10 people in Saginaw County. They're all people who voted for Barack Obama, uh, and it can give you a good snapshot of what's actually happening in Saginaw County. Uh, Michigan. It can't give you a snapshot of what's happening in the nation. But Axios, this news website, has been doing a series of focus groups around the swing counties of the swing states. So in Ohio, in Michigan, in Western Pennsylvania, in Iowa, in Wisconsin, they've been doing focus groups of voters who they know voted for Barack Obama and they know voted for Donald Trump. And let me tell you what what Axios is finding with these people, which is fascinating. The voters hate the fact that House Democrats are moving toward impeachment. They call it a distraction from issues that would improve their lives, like Social Security, cracking down on illegal immigration, keeping jobs in the United States. Chad, a 43-year-old Obama-Trump voter, uh, said of Nancy Pelosi, I think she's wasting a lot of taxpayer money on a ghost chase. The money she's spending on that could go to help the homeless or towards health care. Another participant, 73-year-old Michael, said Democrats focus is in the wrong direction instead of working on policies and things that will help the people. They're just working to basically preserve their own position. They don't really care about you and me. I don't think. So here's what Axio says about these swing voters who voted for Obama and now are Trump voters. They've got no trust in the media. Their support for Trump will grow even if the country enters a recession or a full-blown trade war with China. They credit Trump with making health care more affordable thanks to his tax law, which some say has saved them in taxes they can reallocate for prescription drugs. Now, in past focus groups in the upper Midwest, they've heard voters say they wish Michelle Obama would run for president. They've soured on Trump's personality, and several of them indicated they would vote for Obama over Trump in 2020. But the same voters have a common disdain for impeachment and of the Democratic field. And so they'll go with, with Trump. Now, this is, this is the, the, the most interesting thing here, is that in all of these focus groups, and if you're a Republican, pay attention to this one, if you will, in all of the focus groups in the Midwest, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Iowa, in Michigan, There's a very common refrain that carries over into the British election from last week. The voters don't like Trump personally, but they're voting for him because they like the Democrats even less. There's a common refrain among swing voters. The swing voters do not like the leftward drift of the Democratic Party. And you hear the intellectual lead in our country on the media tell you that the Democrats in this country, they're not as far left as the as the Labor Party in Great Britain. But it doesn't matter. It's all relative, is it not? Our far left may not be their far left, but our far left is still further left than where the American public is comfortable. There is an apples to apples comparison in that regard. The British left drifted too far left for where the British public was. The American left is drifting too far left for where the American public is. And we see that happening with these swing voters in these states, that they don't particularly like the president's personality. They don't like what he does, but they prefer his policies to the Democrats' policies. They understand that his policies are benefiting them by and large and the Democratic policies would not, and that the Democrats culturally and socially are moving too far to the left for them. That's a problem for the Democrats, and it's coming out on impeachment. Here's the other thing I mentioned in the last hour. If you take the polling average right now, impeachment, the polling average for support of impeachment is 47.2% of Americans support impeachment. Hillary Clinton got 48.2% of the popular vote in 2016. In other words, Hillary Clinton got more votes than impeachment is getting, which probably suggests this should be left to the public and not to Congress. Uh, Josh Krashauer has a column at National Journal Against the Grain. And in his column today is the political stalemate over impeachment. Nancy Pelosi wants to protect her most vulnerable members. Mitch McConnell's majority is on the line. Impeachment doesn't serve anyone's interest right now. With the House on track to pass articles of impeachment against President Trump this week, it's worth taking a closer look at the political impact of the process. Here's the uncomfortable reality for Democrats. After an initial surge in support for impeachment, when the record of Trump's July phone call with Ukraine's president was released, Americans have broken into their tribal patterns in reacting to further developments. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff's compelling hearings didn't move the needle much. Independents are divided on the issue, and while Trump's GOP base is energized to fight impeachment, many Democratic voters are more interested in hearing about pocketbook issues. Swing-seat Democrats, particularly those from districts that Trump carried, are now a bit more circumspect about their impeachment intentions. Most are expected to vote for the articles passed by the House Judiciary Committee, but there will likely be a few more defections from Democrats representing the most conservative districts. Representative Lisa Slotkin of Michigan, one of seven Democrats with national security credentials, who led the charge for impeachment hearings, sounded surprisingly evasive when asked by CNN whether she'd made up her mind. Here's the uncomfortable reality for Republicans. A plurality of Americans support removing President Trump from office. Despite Republican claims that there would be a political backlash against Democrats for impeachment, support for removing Trump from office has risen or held steady through the process. And for all the bluster coming from Trump defending House Republicans, their Senate counterparts are showing none of the same political cockiness. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been pushing for a steady impeachment trial without many witnesses, believing the Republicans will be hurt by a protracted process that turns into a Trumpian spectacle. McConnell knows that the politics of impeachment aren't encouraging for senators like Cory Gardner and Susan Collins and Martha McSally. Those Republicans up for re-election on swing states would like to be able to declare Trump's behavior wrong, but not impeachable. It's possible Trump won't allow them to take that path. Impeachments become a no-win proposition for both parties, the equivalent of a battle in the trenches where no side holds a clear advantage. Speaker Nancy Pelosi could have continued the process indefinitely, but it would have risked exposing some of the most vulnerable members of her caucus. McConnell could cater to Trump's demands for a political show with a parade of witnesses, but it would mean that he's faced a growing risk that Democrats win back the Senate majority. Meanwhile, President Trump's approval is identical to where it was before impeachment began. Nothing has changed. And again, to me, when you look at the data, you can say that the president's conduct wasn't good in the phone call. I don't think the president's conduct was good. I, I realize the president says it's perfect, and that's the talking point of the day, and every every Republican is supposed to say it's, it's perfect, but I don't think it was. I, I don't think it was smart of the president to get on a phone call with Ukraine's president when he knows there are people in the White House out to get him, when he knows that there is the supposed deep state conspiracy. We know the whistleblower was in the White House and had complained repeatedly about the president's behavior and finally got him. The president knows all this is happening and decides to raise Biden on a phone call with Ukraine's president. It wasn't a smart thing for him to do. And we should be able to acknowledge that. But was it impeachable? Was it a high crime or misdemeanor? The Democrats believed that Bill Clinton lying under oath in a court of law to deny an American citizen justice was not impeachable. If that wasn't impeachable, this is an impeachable. What did the president get? Nothing. Nothing. That's the answer. Nothing. There, there's no reason to drag this out. Nothing. He got nothing. The the Ukrainians did not investigate the Bidens, and the president gave them the money they were supposed to get. He got nothing out of it. And yet the Democrats want to impeach over this. They didn't want to impeach Bill Clinton. You know, that's the, that's the, the remarkably frustrating thing. I want to go to the New York Times and read to you the New York Times editorial on impeachment. Just Just some excerpts if you'll allow, I got a couple excerpts from the New York Times, deeply relevant. Here it is. The vote against him will be strictly partisan, meaning that the Democrat victory will meet the arithmetic requirements of the Constitution, but will not carry its magisterial authority. "'History, in our view, will condemn the Democrats for using their constitutional powers as an instrument of partisan vengeance. The instrument was intended as a scalpel for the cutting out of cancers, not for the excising of unsightly pimples. Under the present circumstances of a polarized party-line vote, it would be an assault on the Constitution as well as public confidence in that most precious American asset, the orderly quadrennial surrender of power from one chief executive of another.' If the Democrats remove the president by simple force of numbers, the debate over whether this was a political coup will continue for decades and could become a bigger threat to civil stability than Mr. Trump's mendacity. A basic principle for impeachment ought to be that presidents stay in office unless the case against them is so strong that it persuades at least a substantial part of the public and their representatives in Congress on the grounds for impeachment. And that has not happened here. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was actually their impeachment editorial in favor of uh, Bill Clinton. The vote against him will be almost strictly partisan, meaning that the Republican victory will meet the mathematical requirements of the Constitution but will not carry its magisterial authority. History, in our view, will condemn the Republicans for using constitutional powers as an instrument of partisan vengeance. Under the present circumstances of a polarized party-line vote, it would be an assault on the Constitution as well as the public confidence in the most precious American asset, the orderly quadrennial surrender of power from one chief executive to another. If the Republicans remove him by simple force of numbers, the debate over whether this was a political coup will continue for decades and could become a bigger threat to civic stability than Mr. Clinton's mendacity. A basic principle for impeachment ought to be that the presidents stay in office unless the case against them is so strong that it persuades a substantial part of the public and their representatives in Congress on the grounds for impeachment. That was the New York Times then. The New York Times now has impeached the MF, blankety blanker. Just like the, the, the Democratic representative said the orlando sentinel the 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 sun times the usa today the washington post the new york times the la times the chicago tribune oh my goodness they all want him impeached in 1998 all of them were opposed to impeachment for the exact same reasons there are so it, it it's, it's hilarious to read the 98 demands for impeachment of the president the number one thing that all of these newspapers made then is to quote the new york times A basic principle for impeachment ought to be that presidents stay in office unless the case against them is so strong that it persuades at least a substantial part of the public and their representatives in Congress on the grounds for impeachment. Under the present circumstances of a polarized party line vote, it would be an assault on the Constitution as well as public confidence to impeach the president. That was then, but no, no, none of them like Donald Trump, so they're willing to go along with it now, and that is fundamentally a problem. Public opinion in support of impeachment gets less support than Hillary Clinton got in 2016, and she didn't become president. There's no reason to oust the president now with less support than she got in 2016.
1: As both sides target Georgia for 2020, Eric gives you the news you need from a Georgia perspective.
2: The phone number here, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to the phones. Randall, welcome to the program.
5: Good morning. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Better than I deserve, for sure.
2: Excellent. What's going on?
5: Excellent. I uh, I had a, a instance that happened to me last night in Macon, Georgia, at the uh, Cracker Barrel restaurant. I was uh, in the restaurant, had been seated uh, after waiting a few minutes, and uh, while I was waiting for my food to be brought to my table, a manager approached me and told me that since I was open carrying my legally purchased firearm, that I would either have to do one or two things. One, I would either have to conceal my weapon or I could take it back out to the car and leave it in the car. I asked this this manager if there was any signage uh, in front of the restaurant, at the front door, or whatever the case may be, saying that you know guns weren't allowed or um, uh, you had to conceal carry or whatever the case may be. And he told me that truthfully that until just a few minutes prior that he wasn't even aware that Cracker Barrel had a gun policy in that regard. And uh, gee golly whiz, I went on to inquire of him uh, since, I know that I have been open carrying in that Cracker Barrel restaurant and many other Cracker Barrel restaurants across the great state of Georgia and indeed the entire nation and have never had uh, been accosted about carrying. Open so I, I,
2: I'm assuming that somebody in the restaurant uh, saw you, had your gun on you and was uncomfortable, was made uncomfortable.
5: Yes. That's the only uh that's the only explanation uh I could
2: uh Yeah. Could come up. You know, I I, I got to tell you Randall, thanks very much for the phone call. Good good to get a call from Macon. Um I I go back and forth on this issue. A, a, a buddy of mine, says, who is has open carry, doesn't open carry. He he always he's in the camp that it just makes him the first target if someone were to come in, uh, get the guy with the gun on uh, first. But it, you know, we do live in an age of of heightened sensitivity. And I just say my my sense is always that we should do what we can to make other people feel comfortable, Uh, if only because if you're an evangelist for the Second Amendment and everyone around you is made to feel uncomfortable. I I think ultimately it's certainly your right to do it. Uh, Now, if a restaurant asks you to leave because they got a policy and you don't leave, of course, then then you get in trouble, trespassing and all that. Um, and Randall, I, I totally get what you're saying. I, I do, and you never had a problem before. But we live in an age of heightened sensitivity with people, and um, if we're if we're putting people off by the Second Amendment, are we undermining our own cause? Uh, I guess it's subject to debate there. But I do get what you're saying there. Some people get really uncomfortable these days with guns around, unfortunately. It is Eric Erickson. Welcome back. The full number. Want to be a part of the program? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There's a new book out, Restoring Our Republic, The Making of the Republic and How We Reclaim It Before It's Too Late. It happens to be written by a friend of mine, Ned Ryan, joining me now on the hotline. Welcome. How are you?
4: Hey, good to be with you, Eric. Man, I appreciate coming on and being able to talk about this.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, the first question is the most important question. Have you gotten all your Christmas shopping done?
4: Uh, no, absolutely not.
2: See, th- uh, this is why God I love you because, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs>
5: yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. All right. Now now let's get into this. So, so you you got Restoring Our Republic and it, last week I interviewed my buddy Dan Darling about his Christmas book. If there are listeners who want to get either Ned's book or Dan's book, if you text the word data to 33777, I'll send you back links to to Dan and Ned's uh both of their books uh so you can get them. Um you can get them on Amazon. uh Restoring Our Republic is Ned's uh, and I I I I'm glad you're here to talk about this, particularly in light of the Horowitz report last week, oh, gosh. where, I mean, it really looks like basic institutions in our government are collapsing around us.
4: It, they really are, Eric. And, and some of the argument I make is this, what we're seeing today started about 100 years ago. If you realize what the progressives did, turn of the 20th century, dropping an administrative state governing philosophy inside of our constitutional republic, at some point, the tension was going to explode to the surface, and that's really what we've been seeing the last few years. Where a duly elected president of the United States shows up, I'm the duly elected president by the means laid out in the Constitution. I'm the one that decides domestic and foreign policy inside of my administration. An administrative state actors said, "No, we don't think so. We're the ones that decide." And so, at some point, this was bound to happen because it's oil and water; they don't mix. And so, I lay out in the book, kind of where we came from. What was the founders' inspiration? Where did they put the pieces of the machinery in the republic in place? How did they do that? You know, I go through some of the constitutional convention debates. I, I lay out some of the ancient republics and some of their inspiration, constitutional convention. But I really get into, Eric, some of you know, the, the whole philosophy of we, we were never meant to have a massive administrative state. And I make the point in the first chapter, we don't even know the exact number of the departments, agencies, and sub-agencies inside our federal government. We know it's somewhere over 430, but we really don't have a precise number. At some point, we have to make a decision. Is this really what we want, or are we going to go back to a a constitutional republic in which we say we have a need for government, right? We're no angels. We, We realize we're imperfect human beings in an imperfect world. That's what the founders got right. They knew that. They knew that those imperfect human beings should never be trusted with concentrated power. At the same time, they were optimistic, that they could actually create a government that would allow us to pursue our God-given rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, within those bounds of order and liberty. And then I make the point these progressives showed up, and their utopian status. They're utopian in that they believe that we can somehow have human progress and perfection in this world, which is impossible. And they believe that the way to pursue that was through a massive, powerful state. And so they created this administrative state, concentrated power in the hands of imperfect human beings. Here we are today. And we have decisions to make. And, and I, you know, in the last chapter, I make some, some offerings as to what some reform ideas should be to get us back to where we should be going.
2: Well, one of the things that that captures my attention is we have for years, and, and you and I have have had these conversations in the past about auditing the Fed, auditing the government, yes. and, and we, I mean, the amount of agencies and, and duplication within the federal government, we we have no idea what it is. And on top of all of that, uh, we've got this now increasing criminalization of the regulatory state. So you can yes. uh, I- ignorance of the law is no excuse, and you can go to jail. But oh my gosh, there's a regulation that says you. You can't pluck five blades of grass, only four blades of grass while you're going to jail. buddy. it it really does make no sense.
4: Well, and and some of the stuff that, you know, even with the Horowitz report, but even along these lines, what you just said, we have this weird bifurcated legal system. We don't have equal application of the law. And this is, again, one of the poison pills for a republic where certain people with certain associations and certain political connections and people inside of the administrative state, well, they get a pass on some of these things where the rest of us if we did half of what they did if we did a fraction of what they did we'd be in jail and so at some point you, you can't have these inequalities in, in in the opening chapter i make the point our founders made a very distinct choice in the age of the divine right of kings where the king was law they made a decision to go the as king and at some point we have to get back to this idea of the rule of law that all stand equal before it regardless of your last name regardless of your connections that the law is either equally applied or it's not. And if it's not equally applied, well, then I think all bets are off to the republic. But at some point, we, we're going to have to go in. And, you know, I hope that Donald Trump will do this. I do think he'll get reelected. But he's going to have to go in, and as best he can, whether Congress will choose to do anything in the short term or not, make a strong push to say we are going to start devolving power out of D.C. I even offered in the last chapter of the book, Eric, he should shut down the Department of Energy. He should shut it down – Put it into Interior Commerce, DOD, blow the building up, and then figure out how we can get 800,000 of these non-essential federal employees out of the federal government. There's six to seven million uh, private sector job openings right now. Get them out and then remove those jobs from the federal rolls. Let's start making really aggressive steps and saying we have to do this. If we don't do it, we're lost.
2: Well, you've got the situation where Sonny Perdue, the Secretary of Agriculture, former Georgia governor, is moving ag employees to the Midwest. And and they're all quitting and protesting and threatening to sue uh, because he's daring to move them out of Washington closer to the farmers.
4: Well, and you even look at what Josh Hawley and Marshall Blackburn are doing. They have put forward a piece of legislation in which it would put all the various departments around the country, which I agree with. I think we should shut a few more down besides Department of Energy. But break up the leviathan, break up this this cabal that is in Washington, D.C., put it into the various parts of the country, get it out of D.C. Uh, so I agree. Yeah. No, with 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 Senator Governor Perdue and what Josh Hawley and Marsha Blackburn are doing, we have to take aggressive steps. And I think at some point and, and you and I have had this conversation, we have to get Republicans into office that actually fundamentally believe this, because I think the problem with some Republicans today, in fact, too many Republicans, They don't have a fundamental disagreement with the administrative state as long as they are in control of it. No, no, no. That's not the point. The point is what do we fundamentally believe about a governing philosophy of limited government, a constitutional republic, and the diffusion of power? And I make the point, because of where we've gone, I mean, you look at what's taken place over the last three years. People have basically decided, I think, on the left that democracy is kind of inconvenient, our bill of rights kind of inconvenient, mm-hmm. the 4th amendment, civil liberties, yeah, it's kind of a nice thing we talk about in our history books but doesn't really apply today. And the 10th amendment, federalism is a total joke. At some point if we don't take steps towards that, bill of rights is kind of this happy little fiction that really doesn't exist anymore.
2: I'm talking to my buddy, Ned Ryan. He's got a new book out, Restoring Our Republic. If you want a copy of it, you can text the word DATA to 33777. I'll text you back a link. Ned, I I remember studying a, a couple of years ago that the fastest area of growth in government hires is at the state level because they're having to hire employees to monitor compliance with federal government regulation. Uh, so we've now got this virus spreading where it's not just the federal government's gotten under control, but states have to hire more people to ensure they're complying with the federal, not even federal law, just federal regulation.
4: Right, no, and, and if you look by the time you had federal government employees, state and local government employees, Eric, the last figure I saw, we were around the neighborhood of 20 million government employees. That's insane. That's absurd. The thing – but this is this – is, and, I, and I make this argument too. We're kind of living the progressive dream, right? They believe – administrative state, but they believe that a massive bureaucracy was a sign of health for a government, uh, for a people, for a society. I, I make the argument it's not really a sign of health. I think it's a sign of sickness because at some point we have to decide are we going to be a self-governing republic? Well, a self-governing republic is based off people self-governing themselves, right? And, and at some point – if we don't decide to govern ourselves and actually believe that there are transcendent laws and absolutes, we will have massive bureaucracy. Because I, I make the point, too, at some point people desire peace and prosperity, and they have to have a certain amount of order. We either bring it to ourselves and order ourselves, or it will be forced upon us. But you're right. This is, this is getting to the point where you know I live in Loudoun County. I look at these budgets. I look at the amount of, of, of government employees and what the money that we're spending and the levels we're being taxed at. This is insane. At some point, we have to decide this is the role of government, and this is not the role of government. And if we don't, you know this. Government once started, it seems once government has started, once a project has started, once a regulation has started, it never stops. It just continues to build and build and build. So I, I make the argument we've got to stop, we have to, we have to stop, and then we have to start reversing and devolving and shutting some of this stuff down. Kind of get us back into the proper balance of where we started a couple hundred years ago.
2: Well, you, you mentioned Loudoun County, and for for folks who don't uh, know, Loudoun County is in Northern Virginia, and this growth in Northern Virginia of not just federal government employees shifting the state uh, towards the Democrats, but also That's the right. massive number of Fortune 500 companies. You, you drive that road out to Dulles now, uh, right. y- y- and you head out towards Purcellville. You've got these massive Fortune 500 companies that are building headquarters there, uh, Jeff Bezos now moving into the area and others, all to be closer and closer to the federal government. That just th- that seems almost uh, like a... a A court relationship, courtiers in a royal court, (laughs) people trying to be close to that power.
4: Well, I I say that uh, Washington, D.C. has a whiff of Versailles about it. By that, I mean if you look back at French history in Versailles, the people, the, the, the rulers, the ruling class, and that included not only the king and his courtiers but everybody else, they were detached from the people. And they were rigging a system for themselves to benefit themselves. And you look at where we are right now in Washington, D.C., with not only what I call a ruined class, an administrative state. Big corporations and big government are not the friends of the freedom, right? And as you said, I mean, I, I live 30 minutes from the tech corridor in the Reston-Herndon area where you were talking about all this massive growth. They're coming here so that they can get these government contracts, so they can get some of these government subsidies, And so I I look at this, and at some point we have to decide, big government, big corporations, these are the enemy of freedom. These are the enemy of the people. At what point do we find a proper balance? And I have to tell you, Eric, I went in to the White House December of 2017 with this whole great tax bill, big corporate tax cuts, and I said, listen, I get it. I appreciate what you're doing for corporations. At the same time, half the private sector jobs come from small businesses. Why are you not giving them the equivalent tax cut? to actually give them the benefit as they provide nearly half of the private sector jobs. And uh, I was basically told, "What well, are you not happy to, that they get a break? I'm <laughs> like, no, I am. At the same time, we should start thinking about how we actually benefit small businesses who I think are far more pro-American in their worldview mm-hmm. than our multinational corporate uh, global
2: corporations. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've got some disagreements with Josh Howley on on some of his policy pursuits, but I I agree with him strongly on the idea that Washington tends to forget the small and medium-sized businesses in favor of the major corporations. And we see that here in Georgia as well, where you've got in and around the country, you get uh, crony capitalist tax breaks from governments to bring in a fortune 500 company that then competes directly with a company that's a Virginia owned or a Georgia owned company.
4: Right. Well, and, and part of the problem is because these corporations have so much money they have the ability to have a massive lobbying shop. And, and I tell when I do American majority trainings, I'm out there in the field. I tell people part of the problem that we have today is you have all of these special interests that have all of these massive lobbying shops that are in your elected officials offices every day, multiple times a day. Sometimes how often are you seeing your elected official? How often are you having conversations with them? And the problem is, and you know, this, most of our elected officials are experts in self-preservation, right? right? And they're, gonna, they're going to respond. That when the bell rings, they're going to respond to it. What, who's ringing the bell? And sadly, it's not the American people. It's other interests. But I have to tell you, Eric, I know we've had this conversation as well, but speaking of the Senate, you know, you go back and look at the founding fathers and what they actually envisioned for the U.S. Senate. I actually proposed, I think, one of the most damaging things to our republic was the passage of the 17th Amendment. Yes. And, and so I throw out, hey, Let's have this conversation because the the founders envisioned the U.S. Senate being the state's house, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. House of Representatives is the people's house. The Senate is the state's house. And for the first 123 years of our republic, the state legislators actually were the ones that confirmed Senate nominations to the U.S. Senate. It anchored them to their states, and it really gave federalism life. When we passed the 17th Amendment in the early 1900s, it removed senators from some of those obligations and accountability mm-hmm. to their states. And so these are some of the reform ideas I put out in the book. And, you know, at some point we've got to have these conversations. Is this what we really want or not? And if we don't, well, We're not really,
2: you know, just we're almost at a time. But but to that point, you know, I always say that the Democrats complain about money in politics. If suddenly you made the Senate be appointed again by the state legislatures, suddenly you you dilute the money in politics because you've got to spread it out across 50 state legislatures as opposed to focusing on 100 people or really 34 at one time in Washington.
4: That, no, that's right. And again, it's the whole idea is, as Josh Hawley and Marshall Blackburn devolved the, the bureaucracy out of D.C., Devolve this power in the U.S. Senate back to the states, diffuse the power. Again, it goes back to founders knew we're no angels, right? You have to diffuse the power, not only between the, the branches of the federal government, but diffuse the power as, as far down as you can into localities, into the townships. And I talk a little bit about de uh, Tocqueville and the whole idea of really not only the laboratory of freedom, but, but if, if people will put their rights and their freedoms into action in their local townships, then they begin to take back their freedom. They put their freedom into action, and they start to pull that power back. It all kind of comes down to, I mean, this is another inspiration for the book, Eric. We're not really teaching real history and civics in our schools no, anymore. We're not. And so th- that was one of the things where I'm like, okay, I'm going to write a fairly brief book, 280 pages, where did we come from? What's supposed to look like? How do we get back to where we started so that people, once they've read it, can go, okay, now I've got a much better idea of what we're actually fighting for and understand our history better. We have something we're fighting for, Eric. You know that. I know that. I'll help A lot of your listeners know that. But we've got to have more ammunition in this fight, not only against socialism, but against this massive
2: administrative state. Amen to that. Ned Ryan, thanks very much for stopping by the books, Restoring Our Republic. Merry Christmas to you and your family.
4: Hey, same to you, Eric. I
2: appreciate it. Absolutely. Ned Ryan, the book, if you want a copy of it, Restoring Our Republic, text the word DATA to 33777. I'll send you back a link to that. And also, uh, to I interviewed Dan Darling last week on his book, The Characters of Christmas, so you'll get both links in the text message back to you, text DATA to 33777. News and in-depth analysis from Eric Erickson, live five days a week and always online
1: at theresurgent.com.
2: It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is eight seven seven nine seven 97 eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. When we come back at the top of the hour, there's a story in the AJC, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about... Polling precincts in Georgia being closed and the impact that's having national reporters are picking it up as proof that Stacey Abrams had the race stolen from her. Yeah, they're there. The national reporters, they're, they're missing some data. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that more than I've got right now. Right now, have you heard about the circle game at the Army Navy game? Listen, when I grew up, I I, I guess that this is you millennials came up with this. I, I didn't do this as a kid. Uh, You make the OK symbol down on your thigh. You you make a little circle. And you put it on your thigh. And if someone looks down to see it, then you get to punch them in the shoulder as hard as you can. That's the circle game. Of course, boys on a playground came up with it. Of course. Makes sense. Well, at the Army-Navy game this weekend, cadets are being accused of making the white power symbol. They were playing the circle game. Yeah, so that you understand this, so I can put this in perspective. Um, it used to be that the OK symbol was the OK symbol. There's a an an internet website uh, called 4chan that is basically it's where professional internet trolls go to conspire to troll the nation. And a group of people there decided to start the meme that the okay symbol was a white power symbol because if you do the okay just so apparently uh you get three fingers typically when you do okay. I mean even the emoji for okay has three fingers up, but if you hold it in such way it looks more like a W, I guess, and and supposedly you make a a P with your eye, thumb and and your your the, what is your, your second finger, your pointer finger, I, I guess, uh, and, and that that has swept through the Internet is now the OK symbol is a symbol for white power or something. I guess we, it looks more like a B and a W. Maybe it's for Best Western. I, I don't know. Um, but apparently it is a um, it, it's now supposedly, according to people on Twitter, a symbol of white power. I had no idea. I mean, I've been making the okay symbol about things forever, and so have you. And apparently, if you live on the internet now, it's a symbol of white power. I didn't even know this until the outrage over the weekend, but apparently, some internet trolls came up with this. I guess now that I think about it, some kid got in trouble at the White House for supposedly doing this, but it's it's an internet meme by a bunch of idiot trolls online. Well, at the Army-Navy game, the cadets were playing the circle game, where you make the circle... But, uh-oh, it looks like the OK symbol, which, uh-oh, is a white power symbol. And now the cadets are under investigation because people on social media are outraged that they were making the white power symbol at the Army-Navy game. When If you watch the video, seems pretty clear they're playing the circle game, boys being boys, um, wanting to punch each other. Army and, and navy wanting to punch each other. This is their excuse. Instead of having an all out fight, they're playing the circle game. I Yes. Does it strike you as stupid as well? It does to me, but these cadets are under investigation for internet trolls. Okay, so same thing here. Hallmark. Hallmark featured a commercial that showed two lesbians getting married and kissing. And I haven't seen the commercial. I assume they were attractive, so I'm not sure who complained. Uh, but apparently someone complained that Hallmark was showing a commercial of two lesbians getting married and kissing at their wedding. And Hallmark has a very high percentage of uh, Christians watching. I've never seen a Hallmark movie, and I don't plan to start. Um, apparently, uh, so Hallmark has a large Christian audience. That was offended by showing two lesbians kissing at an altar before a preacher. I guess I can see that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and uh, as far as Christians are concerned. So Hallmark decided to take the ad. Well, now the Alphabet Gang has come out and, and which with pitchforks, uh, Hallmark will be made to care. And now Hallmark is apologizing. They've they've done the glad shakedown with the gay rights groups. Uh, and they're, they're paying, they're going to offer up some money and they want the advertiser back and they're apologizing for ever daring to offend the gay rights community, as opposed to the Christians. You will be made to care people. You will be made to care one side and has to be offended. The other side, the whole thing's a dumb controversy though. It all again, started on social media. The program, 877 eric 877-973-7425. It's finally starting to warm up here. Everybody's above, uh, nope. Clarksville, no, you're still below 60. Um, the rest of us are above 60 here and making it 63, thank goodness. And blue sky outside the office. This weekend, the rain was just, it was off-putting. Okay, we need to discuss the Voting Rights Act story in the AJC. You should know, however, there is some breaking news right now. Um, a group has asked the a federal judge to stop the purging of voters in the state. Uh, a federal judge is being asked to prevent Georgia election officials from canceling over 120,000 inactive voters. Fair Fight Action, that Stacey Abrams' group, is suing the state over voting rights. Um, the, the, uh, they're asking, I don't know who the, um, uh, Steve Jones, I gotta tell you, just as an aside here, can Republicans get a clue in Georgia? You know, this stuff is going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. So when the secretary of state, uh, says they're going to begin the the uh, biennial purging of voters. Every odd-numbered year in Georgia, the law requires they clean up the voter rolls and purge voters. Now, keep in mind, these are voters who haven't voted or even had contact with the Board of Elections in more than seven years. It's 300-some-odd thousand people. Uh, the bulk of them are people who ha- we know have moved out of state or change their residency to new uh, counties in the state. And so their old counties are being purged. So it's 120,000 people we've never heard of. Uh, They filed a lawsuit several years ago, and the the whole thing was upheld. And so now they're filing it again, uh, wanting to do it all over again, listen we know they're going to do this it was abundantly clear that one of these activist groups was going to do it I don't know for the life of me why Republicans don't preempt this stuff uh, down in Bibb County he, I'm I'm here in Macon in Bibb County where I'm broadcasting this show through a miracle of technology it goes to, to my flagship station WGAU in Athens and out around the state of Georgia to uh, to Clarksville and, and WCHM and Rome and WRGA and, and around the state it goes Dalton and Jasper and up into the mountains and down to, to Adel and Quitman and Valdosta and Vidalia and you name it, um, and and but here in Macon it's unique. Yeah, Macon is very unique. Let's just admit it. But it's unique because there is a Secretary of State's branch office in Macon, and you know what else is in Macon? A federal district court for the Middle District of Georgia which just so happens to be with the appointment of Tillman E. Self the 3rd president Trump's nominee who's been confirmed by the Senate for the middle district of Georgia It is a majority Republican-appointed bench in the state of Georgia as opposed to the Northern District, which I think has more Democratic appointees than Republican appointees. So if Republicans preemptively file a case on these things in the Middle District of Georgia where there's jurisdiction because there is a Secretary of State's office, then they at least have a fighting chance of getting a conservative judge instead of a liberal judge. And a conservative judge is probably going to say, "Hey, wait a second, you guys filed this exact same lawsuit four years ago and lost. There's no way I'm going to enjoin it this time. But that's not going to happen. They've gone to the federal district in the Northern District, and I suspect they're going to get a, let, let, let's find out. Um, we can see who is, Ah, oh, Yes an athen uh, he's in northern district yep uh a barack obama appointee coincidence 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 they file it and it just so happens to go to a barack obama appointee and i you know it's going to probably be held up again you know these things are going to happen uh be preemptive about it folks be preemptive but There's a, uh, there's a larger story in the AJC and man, the national media is missing the context of these things. Um, Let me read you an excerpt. Uh, Jake Tapper tweeted out an excerpt here, precinct closures and longer distances likely prevented an estimated 54,000 to 85,000 voters from casting ballots on election day last year, according to the AJC's findings. Now, that sounds bad, doesn't it? The AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, mapped Georgia's 7 million registered voters and compared how distance to their local precincts increased or decreased from 2012 to 2018. During that time, county election officials shut down 8% of Georgia's polling places and relocated nearly 40% of the state's precincts. Most of the precinct closures and relocations occurred after the U.S. Supreme Court ended federal oversight of the Voting Rights Act, the AJC analysis, vetted by two nonpartisan st- statistics experts, showed a clear link between turnout and reduced voting. Access. The further voters live from their precinct, the less likely they are to cast a ballot. Precinct closures and longer distances likely prevented an estimated fifty four thousand to eighty four eighty five thousand voters from casting ballots, and the impact was greater on black voters than white ones if black voters were twenty percent more likely to miss elections because of long distances. Without those precinct relocations, overall election day turnout likely would have been between one point two percent and one point eight percent higher not enough for Stacey Abrams to have gotten into a runoff but we, we need to we need to discuss a couple of things with this that's being left out of the conversation. I, I happen to know something about this. I was an elections lawyer, graduated from Mercer University's Walter F. George School of Law. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think you're allowed. I think they're ashamed of Walter George these days at, at Mercer. You're not allowed to say they took the name off the law school. You know, and all the all the Confederate whatcha He was a U.S. senator, famous, and it, we got a we got a big lake in Georgia named for Walter George. But apparently, you're not supposed to talk about him anymore at Mercer. But it, it was at, at one time the Walter F. George School of Law of Mercy University, now it's just the Mercy University Law School, Walter F. George, Um, went to law school, interned in the Secretary of State's office, was an election lawyer. Let me explain the problem here. Prior to the collapse in the Supreme Court of the Voting Rights Act, the the majority conservative bench ruled Section 5 unconstitutional. Section 5 is the preclearance. It had to be renewed by Congress repeatedly over the years and essentially said that southern states who had been part of the Confederacy had to get uh, federal government permission to make any changes to elections ever. You want your districts redrawn, you got to get preclearance from the federal government. And if it was a Democrat in charge, guess what? They weren't going to give you preclearance if you were a Republican. And if you were a Republican in charge of Washington, the Democrats weren't going to get pre. Pretty clear. It was all. It became a shakedown scheme, a partisan shakedown scheme, and it wasn't doing any good. And ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that you know what, the Supreme, the Civil War is more than a hundred years ago. Uh, you now have in a lot of these counties where people are complaining you got majority Democrats in charge, you got majority black Democrats in charge. Hard to say they're discriminating a majority black uh, county is discriminating against the majority black residents. Hard, hard to say that that's discrimination. Also there's plenty of discrimination in northern states that the Voting Rights Act doesn't account for. Among other reasons, uh, the, that section 5 pre-clearance section was thrown out by the Supreme Court. Now, here's what used to happen when the Voting Rights Act Section 5 was in place. If you were let, Let's take where I am, Bibb County, Georgia. Bibb County is home to Macon. Uh, on the map, it's the center of the state, just north of Warner Robins. And prior to the Voting Rights Act, if the county wanted to close voting precincts, the county had to hire a lawyer to file a petition to the Department of Justice to get the Department of Justice to sign off on closing those precincts. If they couldn't get the Department of Justice to do it, they would have to file a lawsuit and, and get a court to say it was okay for them to do it. So you know what happened? They just didn't do anything. They just they didn't bother. It's too expensive. You you want to close precincts because you don't have the money to keep that many precincts open. Well, it costs more to hire lawyers to do the preclearance stuff. So you just spend the money and you raise people's taxes and you spend money to keep open polling precincts, never mind the shift in population. Now, here's one of the things that's happening in Georgia. Rural populations in Georgia are reducing. And because rural populations in Georgia are reducing as younger people move into cities and suburban areas, uh, they have all these precincts that so they don't have as many people living there anymore. So some of these, let, let's take uh, let's take Macon County, Georgia, for example. Uh, Macon County, Georgia, uh, poor county, predominantly black. Uh, they want to reduce their polling precincts because they don't have as many people. They, don't, they can't sustain it. Uh, they don't have the money. They need to consolidate precincts. Well, they don't have the money to hire a lawyer to go to Washington to file preclearance authorization, but they also don't have the money to keep these precincts open. So what do they do? Well, if they raise taxes, they chase more people out of the county, but that's basically what they got to do, or they got to reallocate from law enforcement or education or other things to keep these precincts open. Well, now that preclearance is gone, they can actually close their precincts down in many cases you have poor counties or take Wilkinson, which I think is one of the poorest is the poorest County in the state, large County in middle Georgia, very poor, a lot of dirt roads, uh, a lot of people leaving the County, Uh, not a lot of industry there anymore. It's a beautiful place though, man, if I had a, if I had a bunch of money, I'd probably buy a massive tract of land out near there. Uh, Just commute. Uh, It's a beautiful area, but it's, it's a very poor rural area. And they, they want to consolidate some precincts. They want to combine some precincts. They don't, they don't have the money to keep them open. They don't have the money to preclear. They're kind of stuck. Well, now that preclearance is gone, they can make the changes they want. And you're talking about counties that are predominantly Democrat, predominantly minority, majority minority. And in many cases, you're talking about counties where the majority of the county commission or the, or the board of elections are black. And you've got outside groups uh, that supported Stacey Abrams and, and supports Democrats claiming that this is racism. The reality is that these counties are shrinking in population. They're shrinking in tax base. And they're shrinking in the ability to keep these precincts open. They don't even have enough volunteers. It, it, t- forget paying poll workers. Let's say everybody, vol- they don't have enough volunteers to man the number of precincts. Not only that, if you will recall, they've got to help keep maintain the machines. Now, the Secretary of State's office in Atlanta is going to buy everyone the new electronic voting machines, but then they've got to pay to maintain them. Those machines, over time, you've got to have a good place to store them. That Those costs add up. They don't have all those costs. So they've got to consolidate. You won't get that from the typical hysteria you read in this. Georgia leads the nation, according to the AJC, in automatic voter registration, with more than 350,000 new voters signed up when they obtain their driver's license. There are a record 7.4 million registered voters in Georgia, though about 300,000 of them are scheduled to be canceled uh, because they moved or haven't cast a ballot since early 2012. The Secretary of State said the convenience of voting resulted in record turnout during last year's midterm election, a 57 percent Uh, registered voter participation. He predicted heavy turnout in next year's election as well. There's also ease of early voting. Remember now in Georgia, you can go to your board of elections and vote uh, a week or two ahead of time. Not only that, there's voting by mail. You can fill out a form. You can mail it to your board of elections and say, you can't get to your polling precinct and they can send you a ballot to your house and you can vote by mail. So you can go to the board of elections and vote early You can vote by mail in Georgia, or you can show up on election day. And yet somehow moving a polling precinct is bad or shutting it down. If you'll recall Randolph County, Randolph County is a uh, majority black county run by Democrats in South Georgia. Local officials propose closing seven of the nine precincts in 2018, and the ACLU had a tantrum, they ultimately wound up closing three precincts. Those three precincts that they closed wound up being the three that voted for Donald Trump, by the way, the majority white precincts that voted for Donald Trump. The rest of the precincts stayed open. But the media... Wanted you to believe there was racial animosity, racial bias, and a pro-Brian Kemp bias. Remember, the conspiracy theory was that the county hired uh, elections and consultant who was on the payroll of Brian Kemp's staff, and he was trying to rig the election for Brian Kemp, which was nothing of the sort. It wasn't true at all. And his point was that in these, in the precincts he was recommending they close, there is a federal law called the Americans with Disabilities Act and your polling precinct must comply with the ADA. And the precincts did not comply with the ADA, and they did not have the money to upgrade the precincts. Therefore, based on federal law, the precincts needed to close. That was what he advised. They wound up not going with his advice. They closed all the precincts that went Republican. The Democrats on the county commission, majority Democrats, did that. Time and time again, People try to find racial animosity as the reason these things happen uh, and ask you to pay no attention to the fact that they are uh, either majority black counties, majority black county commissions, or majority Democrats. uh, Somehow, supposedly, mysteriously, they're trying to benefit the Republicans. The facts never add up on these things, but they continue with the hysteria. The reality is the Voting Rights Act drived up costs on counties. And oftentimes it was cheaper for counties to go with the status quo than to hire a lawyer to make decisions that needed to happen to long-term save money, and they were losing money. Now they don't have the pre-clearance requirement, and so they don't have to hire the lawyers. They can just close the precincts, and what you have are predominantly Democratic counties making these decisions. Let's not forget the fact it's not the Secretary of State or the governor who makes these decisions. It is local counties that make the decisions. It is local boards of elections that make these decisions. And if you're in a county that is predominantly Democrat, guess what? Your county commission is predominantly Democrat. Your board of election is predominantly Democrat. But somehow the Democrats want you to believe that this is all a subversive plot to help Brian Kemp and Donald Trump. Essentially, what they're trying to do is run an election based on a paranoid grievance and a sympathetic reporting apparatus. And the state that tells you they're out to get you when that's not it. You know what ultimately is it? Either they close these precincts or they raise your taxes. Take your pick. Well connected and well respected. It's Eric Erickson
1: live every weekday.
2: Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877 97 Eric, 877 973 7425. Uh, 246 years ago today, the Boston tea party occurred. Yeah. It's worth just reflecting on that for a moment. Uh, the Boston tea party. Is where you know the colonists, uh, racists, dressed up as Indians, climbed aboard and started throwing tea overboard in Boston Harbor. Uh, you know the area that uh, Boston Har- of Boston Harbor, where the Tea Party happened, no longer exists. They they essentially built over it, uh, filled it in, and built it over, and it's now part of Boston's Big Dig. But it it got the party started, so to speak, uh, with the Revolution, and it was a big deal. And I think that we as Americans often lose sight of these moments in American history. I, you know, i got to tell you, um, before he left office, yeah, this is slightly humble brag, I realize. Uh, before he left office, uh, Vice President Cheney uh, realized I had not been to the Vice President's Mansion and invited me to come up for lunch uh, at the Vice President's Mansion in D.C., Uh, I was not alone. There were a number of other people there. Uh, Bill Salmons, Charles Krauthammer uh, was with me, uh, Fred Barnes, and a few others. It was was a great, great lunch. And somebody, and I forget who, uh, somebody who was there asked Dick Cheney if he saw divine providence in the creation of the United States. And Cheney said he, he hates to say uh, he hates to say what the mind of God is and things like that but if you read the book there is a great book and and I read it uh Cheney actually sent me a copy of it uh 1864 Lincoln of the Gates of History and it is a it's not a biography of Lincoln it's a biography of a year in the Civil War um let, let, let's step back a little bit you know the the song, and I'll, I'll spend a little more time, I always do, ne- next week. I'll be here on Christmas Eve and Christmas. Uh, a, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It is the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, and Longfellow wrote that poem that was turned into the song. The, the original poem was Christmas Bells. Longfellow wrote it on Christmas Day, 1863. He had received word that his oldest son, Charles, had been critically wounded in a battle, and the Confederates were making massive gains. Uh, By the middle of 1864, as the war is winding up, uh, Lincoln is in danger of losing. The public has soured on the war because the Confederates are making massive advances. Uh, the Confederates have gone all the way up into Confederate, into Union territory. This requires Lincoln to write George McClellan and ask, if you're not using the army, might, might I borrow it? Uh, and But by the end of 1864, things just, I mean, miraculously changed. Uh, let's not mention the conquest of Savannah, shall we? But it just, and Cheney pointed to that and said, it's hard to say, God doesn't have a plan in all this. Down in Thomas County, Georgia, uh, Boston, Georgia. I didn't even, speaking of the Boston Tea Party, this is more like the Boston Beer Party down in, in South Georgia. Uh, Thomas County, That that's what Thomasville, uh, not Thomas Dunn, but Thomasville, yes. Um, a man apparently felt so bad about, but this is like Florida man has come to Georgia. A man apparently felt so bad about breaking the law, he called the police three times to confess. Lieutenant Tim Watkins of the Thomas County Sheriff's Office told the Thomasville Times Enterprise, a man called at 5 a.m. Friday to say he had stolen a car in Thomasville and was now about 12 miles away in Boston, Georgia. A Boston police officer went looking for the Chevy Impala and 29-year-old Quint uh, Rashid Langford uh, couldn't find Langford or the Impala. Langford called back again uh, to say where he was and then finally called a third time to say he had broken into a convenience store and was drinking beer in the convenience store, wanted to confess and turn himself in. He called three times. Uh, that was enough for the Boston police to track him down and arrest him. The car has now been found in Thomasville. Langford's going to be charged with second-degree burglary. And theft charges are pending. He's jailed awaiting a bail hearing. <laughs> oh, it really is. Florida is so close to Georgia, where it's it's Florida man is contagious. Um, I I I need to go off on a tangent. I I got so man some of the stuff I'm just going to have to wait for tomorrow. Um, you, I I want to spend just a, a random moment here. The, this is an actually Associated Press report that is in Time magazine um but the thomasville times enterprise has has covered it we had in the front of our neighborhood now if those of you are familiar with middle georgia there's a bass pro shop and we live near the bass pro shop and there's a development uh being built up on the other side of the interstate from the bass pro shop and a water main uh based on on digging A, a water main was ruptured we were without water from thursday evening at five o'clock until about friday uh at three o'clock it was supposed to be back on by noon it didn't come back on until three o'clock and uh we finally got full water pressure and then there was a, a laminated note on our door uh that there was a, a boil water advisory until further notice and then at some point over the weekend i didn't find it until last night uh had a notice hanging on the door that it was uh all clear didn't have to boil water anymore Uh, Now, you don't really need to know that other than I was really amazed that uh, if I went to the Macon Water Authority website where we are there, I couldn't find anything on their website about it. Uh, And I couldn't find anything in the local newspaper website. I couldn't find anything in any of the local TV websites anywhere. Uh, The only place there was any information that was kept up to date was the Macon Water Authority Facebook page. I had to go to Facebook to find out about uh, the situation. There are a lot of people, even though most people have Facebook, a lot of people don't. Uh, and, and then there there was a, a chain on Nextdoor. Uh, Nextdoor, if you don't know what Nextdoor is, that's kind of like Facebook for neighborhoods. It's actually kind of neat. Um, it, it's it's better than than your your standard social media in that you get a postcard in the mail that your neighbors have invited you, and here's your code to get into Nextdoor, and it's about your neighborhood as opposed to your city. And there was communication there. What I was struck by is the decline in local media. Uh, our local newspaper here in, in middle Georgia is, is, I don't know how many reporters they have left, but it's, it's, it's not a lot. And there was actually a, I, I was involved in a conversation last Tuesday with an older gentleman who was so upset now that he can't, uh, he, all he can read are the high school football scores on the weekend. He, he can't get play by play of what happened in the big high school games anymore. Used to, used to have that coverage now. And it really hit home with me with this boil water advisory, the collapse of local media around the state, uh, the, the things that used to be covered like this. You've now got to go to Facebook and, and actively find the information yourself. You don't have local newspapers covering stuff like boil water advisories uh, for parts of the community anymore. And, and if if it if it bleeds, it leads With even the TV news websites, there are lots of crime reports but not a ton of stuff about local things like a boil water advisory that actually puts people's, potentially puts people's health at risk. It's just a really a wake-up call in, in the decline of local media. And frankly, it's one reason I wanted to do this program across Georgia now is because we don't have a ton of media covering a ton of stories that are statewide stories, and you don't have any news shows. For example, if you listen to your, your typical talk radio station, You're going to find uh, a host of shows, and those shows are going to be national news shows, and those shows as national news shows are not going to talk about Georgia politics or Georgia news. And if you've been listening to this program today, I certainly talk about my fair share of national politics and national news and national culture, but also try to talk about specifically stories in Georgia, like voting precincts and and the collapse of voting precincts and the impact of pre-exemption or or pre-clearance by the federal government in Georgia and the AJC report, uh, things like that or this Georgia man getting arrested in Thomasville for stealing the car and breaking into the, into the convenience store to, to drink beer. Um, you're not going to get those stories at a national level. And it is very hard now for... A political candidate for a senator, for the governor, or even the vice president or the president to be able to hit all media outlets in Georgia at once. It's one reason I'm, I'm so aggressively trying to grow the show across the entire state of Georgia. So, And I made no bones about it. One day I would like to focus much more on national stuff. Uh, I would like to have a nationally syndicated radio show as opposed to just a regional show or a Georgia show. Uh, and hopefully one day that will come. But I, I can't ignore even then my own backyard. Uh, there are certainly stories. I mean, the preclear story is a perfect example. It's a Georgia story, but it's getting national attention. And, and it's great to be able to weave that in. But for right now, um, being a show in Georgia and trying to find news about Georgia, it really is amazing to me. One, the collapse of newspapers around the state. You used to be able to go to newspaper websites around the state and find detailed local news, and and it's real hard to do that now. Um, The the Macon paper and the Columbus paper are both owned by McClatchy, and typically you go to either one and you think you're looking at the same website, but for a blurb or two different. Uh, But uh, that's not to say that it's not there. Local TV stations in particular are picking up the slack or or radio outlets. For example, uh, in Athens, uh, you can go to the, the Banner Herald website or you can go to WGAU Radio, which is a news talk station and has news about that area. Uh, in fact, you can find more of it there. Uh, go to Savannah. You can go to some of the different radio and TV stations in Savannah often and find more news than you can about uh, the local area in, in Savannah. The, the Savannah and the Augusta papers as well are kind of, Um, no longer putting out the copious volume of local information. The downside of those though, is that by their nature, TV and radio news is short. You've only got for your, what your, your evening newscast, you got 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, you got to do news, you got to do weather, you got to do sports. You got to do community interest stuff. With a newspaper, you have much more space to be able to do it, and the newspapers aren't doing it. Uh, Budget reasons and and national companies buying local newspapers and then bleeding the local newspapers dry to subsidize other newspapers, it's become a real problem. and I mean, we've heard this happening. We've seen this happening. If you live anywhere in Georgia, by and large, you've, you've experienced this, the decline in local media. But uh, to have this boil water advisory situation this weekend, it it really did kind of an eye-opening moment there. One of the stories that has largely flown under the radar as well statewide that I've given some attention to is Georgia Power. Georgia Power wants a rate hike, and the Georgia Public Service Commission is expected to vote on that uh, this week. Uh, It's actually going to be tomorrow. And I got to tell you, there's an organized campaign against Georgia Power for a rate increase. They wanted um, a 7% increase. Uh, They have cut that percentage increase. And uh, they wanted to go from $10 a month for their basic service fee to $17.95. Uh, they, they're agreeing now to a $14 increase that would be spread out through to 2022. And they're right, by the way. Uh, let, let me just uh, cut to the, to the chase here. Georgia Power deserves the rate hike increase. And none of us want to pay more for our rate hike increase. But they make a lot of sense into why they need it. And all you need to do is look at California. In California... Uh, The PG&E, the Pacific Gas and Electric, is bankrupt. The utility is bankrupt. Uh, The utility kept being denied the ability to increase its basic service fee. And What was happening is um, more and more people in California were moving to solar and wind power and taking themselves off the power grid. And when they were taking themselves off the power grid, PG&E, the, the electric company, very much like the situation here in Georgia, when you take yourself off the power grid and put a solar panel on your roof, to if there's excess power, the power companies, thanks to lobbyists, the power companies are required to buy the excess power from you. They may not want it, but they're required to buy it from you. What was happening in California, though, is that though the solar panel and windmill user was allowed to sell their excess energy to PG&E, PG&E could not charge them for use of the power lines. That's where the basic service fee comes in for power companies. If you get power from Georgia Power, your power bill may be $50 a month. It may be $300 a month. Every single person pays a basic amount, $10 a month, just to cover maintenance on the lines. So if someone here in Georgia puts a solar panel on their roof and generates excess electricity, they can force Georgia Power to transmit that power through Georgia Power's lines, and they're going to get charged $10 for using Georgia Power's lines. In California, they were prohibited, the power company was prohibited from allowing people to do that. So what happened in California is the power companies had to meet certain clean energy requirements. They couldn't get clean energy users to help subsidize the cost of maintenance of the lines. And so they directed all their money to meeting clean energy requirements and did not clean the lines. Now, what are you talking about cleaning the lines? Well, part of it is you got to trim the trees. We just had, we got big power lines uh, down Bass Road in Macon, where I live, and George Power this past summer came through and they, they had tree trimmers, hired contractors to come down and, and clean all the lines so that tree limbs wouldn't fall on them during hurricane season. In California, they stopped doing that. They stopped paying to trim the trees. They stopped paying people to fly over the lines in helicopters and look at the lines to see if there was rust or or anything exposed that was wrong. They stopped doing maintenance because they had to comply with their clean energy costs. If they didn't meet California's clean energy goals, then they were going to be fined way more uh, than they had in the bank. So in addition to not being able to charge people for use of their power lines they couldn't clean up their power lines because they had to spend their money on other stuff the whole thing has gone bankrupt now and all these fires have been started and now in california the power company's turning off the lights when there are high winds that come through now the power company turns the power off for days at a time in northern california and people are in the dark and a lot of it comes to california told them you weren't allowed to charge people for a basic maintenance fee on the lines and that's ridiculous If you use the power line, if you have a power line coming into your home, you should be obligated to help cover that cost. It's part of your bill. You may not like it, but everybody pays it. And thankfully here in Georgia, uh, people who resell their power to Georgia Power, they pay it too. But there's a catch. Some people completely pull themselves off the grid. And it's always rich people. It's always rich people in Atlanta. And that means there are fewer people to maintain the grid. And as a result, because there are fewer people to help maintain the power grid, the cost goes up for the rest of us. It is unfortunate. It is one of the side effects of people switching to solar and wind. Uh, Here in in the the Atlanta area, you know, the the solar power adoption in Atlanta is not great. Uh, It has more to do in South Georgia. And and Georgia Power, frankly, is catching up. Uh, You go south of Macon, there's a huge solar energy field They got solar – I mean, it looks like like weeds sprouting up, but it's solar power panels all over. And uh, they're doing a good job of trying to convert where they can to solar power. But, I mean, with the weather like we've had in Georgia in the last couple weeks, I can't imagine that they're going to be making as much off the solar power panel grid – as a lot of environmentalists claim they will, because it gets cloudy in Georgia. There's this thing called rain that they don't have in the desert that they have here. But nonetheless, uh, in any event, so George Power wanted to jack up their rate to $17 an hour. They're going to jack it up to $14 an hour. They're going to spread out the increase. It'll be $12 by 2021, $14 in 2022. And all of the people who have fought them tooth and nail on any rate increase are suddenly like, oh, yay, this is acceptable. Which... I would submit to you gives rise to a lot of cynicism when they've been fought tooth and nail over the ability to raise the rates. And by the way, you should know they haven't raised rates in a a decade. Uh, They committed a decade ago to not raising rates for a decade. And and now so they held it at ten dollars. And now they're coming out saying, okay, time to raise it. They're going to raise it to 14 from 10 to raise it four bucks after a decade of no increase. I think they've probably earned the right to raise the rate. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect me. It's going to affect us all. But it is still a smaller increase than the rate of inflation over the last decade. And you got these environmentalists out there blowing them up for it. Um, Maybe we should actually... And and you know what the the awful fear is? You know what the terrible, awful fear the attack of the left on Georgia Power amounts to? (gasps) They may make a profit. How dare dare they actually make a profit when did making money become a bad thing honest news and conservative views never separated from the truth
1: it's the eric erickson show
2: it is eric erickson here i i gotta play you some audio from ben dominant she was on uh fox news and he makes a point uh, you need to listen to his point because it is super relevant to the state of affairs in the United States right now.
1: Well, let me jump in because the Washington Post had a blockbuster series this week obtaining confidential documents about how three administrations, the Bush administration, Obama and Trump, uh, lied and misled about the Afghan war, we've been now for 18 years. And this wasn't the paper's opinion, this was the uh, interviews with top officials, all kinds of documents, and it got very little pickup. It's a huge story,
4: Howie, and it shouldn't, I think most Americans are probably not that surprised that uh, the government has been spinning this story about the Afghanistan war to them over the years. But it should be the biggest story that we're talking about, because we've spent a trillion dollars and lost more than 2,300 American lives in a war that we really don't know the purpose of anymore. And yet this story was not the one people were paying attention to. In fact, I consulted with Gravian, an internet service that tracks these sorts of things. And in the past four days, Jake Tapper raised it this morning for the first time, but in the past four days, CNN did no segments on the Afghanistan papers, but they did do four different segments
5: on this controversy that they were cheating up about this Thanos meme that the president had uh, uh, his supporters. Thanos is a
1: Marvel Comics villain.
2: (laughs) Yeah for those of you who don't know the president's campaign team sent out a video meme on Twitter of the president's face digitized onto Thanos and he snaps the infinity gauntlet and Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats as they're having their impeachment press conference they all turn to ash. And that deeply, deeply upset Don Lemon on CNN, uh, really upset Don Lemon that they would do this. Uh, his, his monologue, I played it several times the other day just to laugh at it. He was, Don, Don Lemon was very upset, but it continued on CNN. And they had four or five stories about the Thanos meme on CNN. They didn't cover, if if Dominic is right, and and I got no reason to doubt him, uh, he and I both used Grabian, and I went in and looked as well, and I can't find it anywhere, Uh, CNN did not cover the Afghan papers. If you're not familiar with the Afghanistan papers, uh, the Afghanistan papers are from uh, an Open Records Act lawsuit or Freedom of Information Act lawsuit by the Washington Post, showing essentially, going back to the Bush administration, the, um, the Democrats or, and Republicans alike, Obama and Bush, and the diplomats and bureaucrats in the Defense Department and State Department have essentially engaged in a long-term cover-up of what's happening in Afghanistan. It's a really bad look for the government. It's very much like the Pentagon Papers um, against uh, I- during Vietnam, where rosy projections were offered up that we weren't actually meeting, and they were to led to have you believe that, in fact, uh, we were making progress when we weren't. We've moved on from the story. It is a huge, huge story. The government has essentially been lying for a decade about Afghanistan. The government essentially has fabricated data on Afghanistan. That's a really big freaking deal. Really big deal. And we're not even talking about it anymore. We're not covering it. The Afghanistan conflict has been replaced by a meme and an obsession about Donald Trump. You know, that's part of the issue here. There is a genuine obsession on the left about the president now. And it's unfortunate uh, because what they've done is they have allowed the president... To control them and shape their news coverage in ways that I don't think really is appropriate and there's no way around it. And and by the way, I don't mean that disparagingly on the president. I mean, as a pretty damn indictment on the American press that if the president gets on Twitter right now and says, oh, how about Kofifi makes a makes makes a typo. For the next week, all we're going to hear about in the media is that the president, what did the president mean by Kofifi? And I'm not making that up because that actually happened. The press spent a week on the president making a typo on Twitter and not deleting it. The president has a superpower. He can get on Twitter and tweet something and send the media off in any direction. And he's been able to get them to completely ignore the Afghanistan story, which is a huge sensational story of the media suing the government to get classified information. And the media is not even talking about it because the president tweeted a meme about Thanos. That's absurd.